need to let you, if you are age four up through ten, and you want to go to junior church, our kids program, you can go now and your parents will pick you up at the end of the service. You can go. We don't have a lot of kids here this morning. They must all be on vacation. Okay, so if you have a Bible, or you can pull one out of the seat back in front of you, please open up to Ephesians. Actually, no, open up to Psalm 95. We'll be looking at that psalm first. And you have some time to find it. I'll let you look in the index if you don't know where to find Psalm 95 because you've got plenty of time to find it. We'll look at it a little bit later. And I'll find my sermon notes. Um, About maybe four to six months ago, the discussion group, which normally meets in the lounge at 11 a.m. after the sermon to discuss the sermon and the scripture that the sermon is on, was discussing what topics they hadn't heard a sermon on in a while and which they would like to hear addressed. Thanks, Robert, for the water. Nice haircut. <laughs> well, as they were having this discussion in the lounge, by far the, the winner of, of their choice for a topic they'd like to hear addressed was the topic of reverence with the question, what does it mean to be reverent when we come to church on a Sunday morning? And I've had several months to think about that topic. And the danger in addressing a topic like this, instead of preaching on a text of Scripture like we usually do here, is that there may be too many of my ideas and not enough of God's Word. So I've done my best to stick close to Scripture and to um, pray for God's wisdom. And uh, here we go. What is reverence? And what is that have to do, how does that relate to what we do here on Sunday morning? To get our minds into the subject and maybe even to rattle our conceptions of what reverence is, I want to start by asking a question. In the gospel stories about Jesus, who's more reverent, Jesus or the Pharisees, and why? I'm going to invite you to turn to someone next to you and answer that question. And if you have no idea, just say, I have no idea. That's perfectly fine. But take a minute, turn to someone near you, say hello. Who's more reverent, Jesus or the Pharisees and why? Okay. I don't know about you, but that question makes me second guess my definition of reverence. <laughs> you see, I, when I think of reverence, I think about being serious and, and being sober and maybe even kind of ducking half an inch in the presence of one who's greater than me. Well, I did some research on what reverence means in the Bible, and I found that actually my conception of reverence is basically right, that if you look up the the Greek and the Hebrew words which are translated reverence in English, they all basically mean to be cautious, to be 
fearful, to be sober because you're in the presence of someone greater than you who has great power over you. So the basic definition is straightforward enough, but where things get interesting is when we look at how the Bible encourages us to express that reverence. How do we know when we're acting reverently? Well, to begin to get our minds around that question, let me pose some answers that I've heard in this church and I've heard in the last church I pastored. These are all things that I've heard church people say about what they feel is or isn't reverent behavior in church. We'll start with style of music. (laughs) I've heard some people say that passionately and joyfully singing contemporary worship music is more reverent than stumbling through old draggy hymns. And I've heard other people say, not surprisingly, that singing the rich, meaningful hymns is more reverent than trying to sing those superficial and unsingable worship songs they come out with these days. And in our church, we do some of both, especially once our main contemporary worship leader gets back from a well-deserved vacation. Well, perhaps both groups would admit to overgeneralizing and would allow that there are some rich, meaningful, contemporary worship songs, and there are some compelling and joyful hymns, too. But which is it overall? What's more reverent, the classics or the contemporary? Well, not surprisingly, the Bible doesn't offer us an an opinion on this debate, not the least of which reason is that it was written over a thousand years before any of this music came along. What do we learn from Scripture then about reverence when it comes to music? Well, what we learn is that there's a place in our worship for all kinds of moods and emotions. Psalm 95, which I asked you to turn to earlier, is a classic example of this. It begins, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Evidently, whatever kind of music God likes, joyful singing is okay, and so is shouting. I don't know if you've ever been to a Christian youth gathering these days. When I pastored in Canada, our church had an annual summer worship and service festival for the youth, and they had a mosh pit when they worshipped. And there was a whole lot of shouting going on. If you could hear it over the loudness of the speakers. And that shouting is potentially right in line with the psalm. After all, David, the psalmist, liked to dance. He liked to celebrate. And if you remember the story of his dancing with all of his might before the ark of the Lord, his wife, Michael, didn't think it was very distinguished. And yet, Scripture found fault with her and not with him for his exuberant, outgoing worship. Well, Psalm 95 goes on. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Now the tone's getting more serious. There's a time to quiet down and to to fall on our faces before God. One thing I dislike about the way that most contemporary church sanctuaries are set up is there's no room to kneel down as part of our worship. Do you know that the, the primary meaning of the word worship in the Bible is actually to kneel down? And yet it's not something we can really do, given the way that we're set up. Well, Psalm 95 then ends on an even more sober note with a warning. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart 
like the Israelites of old did, and I declared in my anger they will never enter my rest. Well, I conclude from this variety that that musical style itself doesn't tell us very much about what is reverent and what isn't, though that's not to say that some lyrics might not be more reverent than others. All right, well, let's move on then to the matter of food and drinks. At our last church, some felt that it was very irreverent to bring coffee into the worship service, and others felt that it was more irreverent to fall asleep during the sermon and thus the coffee. (laughs) The first group thought they should drink their coffee before they came, thank you very much. Well, we know from the book of Acts and the book of Corinthians that the early church regularly enjoyed meals together as part of their worship service. And so food and drink may feel reverent or feel irreverent in worship to some of us, but they can't in and of themselves be irreverent when we look at Scripture. All right, well, what about being on time for church? And I did, no one should feel singled out this morning about this. But I have heard some people say that it's irreverent to show up to church late and, and to rush in without having had time to prepare your heart. Well, again, the Bible won't help us very much on this one. I can't think of any scripture which addresses being on time. Unless we think of the time that King Saul was waiting to offer sacrifices and the prophet Samuel was late. And yet, if you know that story, of course, it was Saul that got in trouble there and not Samuel. When it comes to timeliness, it really seems to be a cultural matter. And many of uh, you have traveled, and, and so you've been, you know, being exposed to other cultures that uh, not all cultures work on the punctuality of Western time, right? All right, well, let's move on to a related matter, that of disrupting the service. Um, I've heard people say it's irreverent to disrupt the service by entering late or by leaving early or to allow a child to cry or to make noise during the service. And again, I suspect that this is a cultural issue and that it may be more a matter of being considerate than of being reverent. Kenneth Bailey, who's a Bible scholar who has lived much of his life in the Middle East, tells about how for a long time it annoyed him when he was preaching in one of the small villages of the Middle East, the people would talk during his sermons. In fact, it always seemed that they talked most when he was making one of his best points. And this this really frustrated him until he found out why they were talking. You see, these villages were oral cultures. They didn't take notes. And so when you said something that they wanted to remember, they'd turn to the person next to them and they'd say, did you hear that? And then they'd repeat what the preacher had said in order to solidify it in their collective memory. That's why they were always talking when he preached. I can also tell you firsthand that I've worshipped in churches in Romania and in Hungary. I've worshipped with Africans. I've worshipped with gypsies. And in many cases, there were no nurseries. There were no kids' programs. There was a much looser schedule. And and interruptions and distractions were just a given. And I suspect that it was like this in the early church too, so much so that the church in Corinth, that Paul had to... Uh, correct the Corinthians in that church and to insist that everything be done in decency and order. But how much decency and order is enough seems to me to vary from culture to culture. All right, let's move on to being on our best behavior in church. 
I've known church people who got offended because someone laughed or smiled too much during communion. And because someone used an off-color word in the sanctuary during a congregational meeting. Ironically, a couple of those who were offended about that off-color word, I know for a fact, cursed at each other at home. It wasn't anyone in this church, thankfully. So what about such behavior in church? Is behavior which we might consider tolerable, if not ideal, everywhere else? Is it particularly irreverent if it happens in a room like this, a church sanctuary? What does scripture say about this? Well, granted, it's just common sense that a behavior which is appropriate in one context can be offensive in another. I once got offended because a teenage couple was all but making out during one of my sermons. (laughs) Wrong context for that behavior as far as this preacher was concerned. But yet, when we look at Scripture, wasn't Jesus pretty hard on people who acted one way in a public religious setting, and then they were a different kind of person when no one was watching? Would Jesus condemn poor behavior in church and let it slide at other times and places? We'll come back to that question. But first, let's consider one last practical area. There's others. I had to limit it for the sake of length. But one last one worth considering is that I sense that some people believe that being reverent means thinking religious thoughts. And so if you're in church and you're you're thinking or talking about other things, then you're being irreverent. And I don't know about you, but I'm particularly sympathetic to this idea. I mean, after all, if we aren't in church to think about God, why are we here? Are we here to make business contacts? Are we here to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Jesus says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. And that's surely an encouragement to think about God. Though I have to admit, Jesus wants us to do that all the time, not just while we're in church. Also, Jesus warns the Pharisees who thought and talked about God in public a great deal. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are actually far from me. We don't always know what's going on in people's hearts, even when we hear their words. And so it's pretty tough for us to judge when someone is in church for the right reasons. All right, well, have I succeeded in muddying the waters? Well, let's step back and consider what we can make of all of this. Let me make two observations about the ground we've covered so far. First, as I just mentioned, we need to be careful not to judge the hearts and attitudes of others when all that we can see is their outward behavior. Remember 1 Samuel 16:1, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Laughing and joking in church could in fact be irreverent. Singing a happy, clappy, noisy song could also be irreverent. So could coming to church late or walking out in the middle or drinking coffee. But then again, maybe these things are not irreverent at all. I can't judge your heart and you are not to judge my heart. God judges our hearts and he calls us each to examine our own hearts before him. Second, many of these issues are culturally specific. 
And what may be reverent in one culture could well be irreverent in another culture. And maybe America used to be a monoculture, but we're no longer a people who can all agree on what's reverent and what's irreverent. That's just no longer the case in 21st century America. Not only do we have people from different nations and ethnicities and denominational backgrounds together here at CBC, but there are even increasingly cultural differences between the generations. Is anyone aware of that? You look at your kids or your grandkids and you say, they're a different culture. And I think we need to resist the urge to insist that our culture is right and their culture is wrong. Unless we've got a good arsenal of scriptures to back us up. Now this is not to say that if we come to a worship service where the purpose is to focus on God and our mind is everywhere but on God, that's not to say that we're not being irreverent. But we should judge our own hearts and attitudes. And I'm just suggesting that we, we don't know others' hearts, especially if they're from a different culture from us. Our cherished cultural values may not be God's cherished cultural values. And they may not be those of the person sitting next to us in church on Sunday morning. All right, well, we've raised a bunch of questions about what reverence may not be. Let's work toward now an answer to the question of what reverence, in fact, is. To do this, I want to look at the subject of reverence through several sets of lenses. Let's put on three different sets of glasses. And each in turn, we'll put them on and we'll see what each of those lenses helps us to see about reverence. All right? The first set of lenses has to do with our theology of sacred space. Is this room more sacred than any other room? Does God hold what happens in this room to a higher standard than he does what happens in any other place? That's the question. What does scripture say? Well, from the earliest times recorded in the Bible, God has met his people in special places. First, the Garden of Eden, then later Mount Sinai. Then God had Moses and the Israelites build him a tent tabernacle, a sanctuary where God's glory dwelt in the form of a thick cloud. And in conjunction with that tabernacle, God gave his people a whole series of holiness laws to show that the tabernacle was a holy place, a, a set-apart place, a place where reverence was required. For example, Leviticus 19.30, Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. You didn't approach the tabernacle lightly. The holy God dwelt there. We all probably remember, if we've read the Old Testament, those terrifying stories of Nadab and Abihu and Uzzah. God struck these men dead because they disregarded God's regulations regarding his tabernacle. Years later, Solomon built a permanent temple to replace that tent tabernacle, and God's presence filled that new temple. And, and then that became a holy place where reverence was required. And so it remained until the time of the exile when Ezekiel saw the presence of God depart from the temple, never to return again. The temple was destroyed. Later, under Ezra and Zerubbabel, the Israelites rebuilt that temple, but there's no record in Scripture that God's presence ever filled that new temple, interestingly. 
In fact, we don't see God's presence again in a clear way in Scripture until Jesus comes. And then Jesus himself replaces the temple. He alone becomes the place where God is present and where God meets with his people. Jesus. Well, after Jesus died and rose and and ascended back to God, Pentecost came and God's presence transferred once again, this time to Jesus' followers. Jesus now pours out his spirit and God comes to be present right among his people. And so now we are the temple of God, the place of reverence. And God comes to be present among us, we who love and follow and trust Jesus Christ. The Holy Church had no buildings. God's place was them, wherever they met. Jesus said, in fact, that wherever two or three gather in my name, he said, I am there with you. And Jesus is actually even present in a single believer when they don't gather with anyone else. Paul says in Corinthians, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Lord? So in light of all this, let's re-ask some questions about reverence. Is it more irreverent to curse in this room than to curse at your family at home? Is it more irreverent to be regularly 15 minutes late for church than to be regularly 15 minutes late to meet your friends for coffee? Is it more important to think about God when we're in this room together than it is when a group of us go out for lunch after the service? I'm going to leave those questions hanging. But hold on to them as we put on our second set of glasses. This set goes by the Latin phrase, quorum Deo. I believe it was the Protestant reformers who came up with this phrase to remind us that we all live our lives in the presence of God. That's what quorum Deo means. It means to be in the presence of God. And the reformers recognized that as Christians, we can't hide from God when we leave church. That rather we live every moment of every day in quorum Deo, in the presence of God. He sees everything we do. He hears everything we say. He even knows every thought we have. He's there with us at all times, the Holy One. Okay, third, final set of glasses. Another phrase, this one from the Bible. Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. We're getting really close to the issue of reverence now because in the Bible, the English words fear and reverence are two ways of translating the same Greek or Hebrew word. So fear of the Lord could also be translated reverence of the Lord. In many cases, the Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie has written an excellent article on what the fear of the Lord is. And he points out that the phrase is a syntagma. You have to be an Old Testament scholar to use a word like that. But it it basically means that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. Take pineapple, for example. A pineapple is more to understand what it means. You have to understand more than just to understand what pine is and what apple is. Or butterfly. You can't get a butterfly by combining butter and a fly, right? (laughs) So understanding the fear of the Lord requires more than understanding fear and Lord. The sum is more than the parts, or the total is more than the sum of the parts. Let me summarize what the fear of the Lord is according to what Walkie said in the Proverbs class I had with him back in July. Uh, he came, or this came up in class because of the, we were looking at the proverb, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he said that the fear of the Lord, and he's summarizing a 
20-page article here, so you don't have to go out and read the article if you don't want to. The fear of the Lord involves hearing God's word, responding to it with a a humble and an open heart, and trusting and loving God, and so walking faithfully in obedience to his commands. Hearing God's word, humbly responding to it, trusting and loving God, walking in obedience to his commands. That's the fear of the Lord. And this is something the Old Testament people of God were to do, not just when they went to tabernacle or to the temple. No, they were to fear the Lord all the time and everywhere. In fact, how does God feel when we act like we fear the Lord when we're at worship, but then we go out and we don't actually live in the fear of the Lord? Well, Isaiah sums up God's sentiments in Isaiah 1. He says, actually, why don't you turn there? You have your Bible. You go back toward the back. A chunk of pages past uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, and then you get to Isaiah. Chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Isaiah has a message from the Lord. He says to the people of Israel, Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God has very little patience for those who act reverently in public worship, but don't follow it through with the rest of their lives. And when we actually look up the places where the word reverence occurs in the Bible, this is just what we find. I'm going to skip over the Old Testament just to save time, but listen to how the word reverence is used in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah had reverent fear and so he built an ark. Titus 2.3 says older women should show their reverence by not gossiping or drinking too much wine, but by teaching younger women how to live for the Lord. Colossians 3.22, Ephesians 6.5, and 1 Peter 2.18 say slaves in that culture should show their reverence by submitting to their masters. And this, I think, is often rightly applied to employers and employees today. 1 Peter 3.2, oh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3.15 says we should share the gospel with gentleness and respect. And that word respect can also be translated reverence. 1 Peter 3.2 says wives should win over their unbelieving husbands by the reverence of their lives. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says that because he knows what it means to fear or reverence the Lord, he tries to persuade people to accept the gospel. Philippians 2.12, we are to work out our salvation with fear or reverence and trembling. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says that reverence for God should lead us to purify our lives. 
And finally, in 1 Peter 1.17, we're to live our lives in reverent fear because we know one day God will judge our work impartially. Notice not one of these verses says anything about what happens in a room like this on a Sunday morning. They all have to do with our everyday lives. But actually, I cheated. There are two verses which do have to do with worship services. So let's look at them. Hebrews 12:28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We definitely are to worship with reverence and awe in church just like everywhere else. Now let me give you the other verse. I've saved what I think is the best for last. When I think as a pastor of what it means to have reverence in our worship, this is the first verse for me that comes to mind. I think it solves most of our problems and it answers most of our questions. It's in Ephesians 5. You can turn there. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Ephesians 5, it's toward the end of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, or something like that. I found it. Okay, Ephesians 5, I'm going to start in verse 19, picking up what Paul is saying. He says, speaking to one another, he's talking about their communities worship together, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then here it is, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think that's the number one important verse to answer the question of how we show reverence when we worship together. We show reverence for Christ by putting our desires and our preferences aside in order to submit to the desires and preferences of others. Some of us find old hymns more reverent than contemporary worship songs. Others find the newer music more reverent. Let's not judge one another. Let's rather submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Some of us prefer to quiet our hearts before worship, especially us introverts. Others, especially you extroverts, prefer to warmly greet the people that that you love, who you haven't seen all week. Let's not judge one another. Let's rather submit to one another out of reverence. For Christ. Some find it irreverent when you come into the service late. Others find it irreverent that you would prefer to exclude their children from the service, even if they are making a little noise. After all, doesn't the kingdom of God belong to such as these? Let's not judge one another. Let's rather submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I submit to you, That as best I understand the scriptures, reverence has less to do with the rightness of our preferred way of focusing on or honoring God. And it has more to do with how we treat and think of others who are from a different culture or background 
than us. Reverence has less to do with judging how serious others are being about God and more to do with being considerate not to do what bugs others and with being patient and understanding with those who bug you. That, I think, is the first most important way that God wants us to revere him when we come together as his people on Sunday morning. Let's pray. God, you are great and awesome and holy. And yet you have come and made your presence right among us. And if Jesus hadn't come to die for our sins and to wash them all away, we would be destroyed because you're here. But because of your great mercy, you are here. And I pray that you'd help each of us to search our hearts and make sure we have a reverent attitude towards you. And that we express that in a way that is both fitting for who you've made us to be and also in a way that is considerate to the people around us. And I pray um, when someone else is bugging us and, and what they do strikes us as irreverent, that we would be slow to judge, quick to be patient and to submit to them, realizing that it may just be that they're different from us. God, we need your help to do this. When our buttons get pushed, parts of us come out which are not our best parts. Give us help. Give us patience. Amen. All right, what happens next? A song, I think? Where's my... Yes, hymn 208. So we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. And let's focus ourselves on Jesus and sing this song. Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Please stand if you're able.
What better place than this table to respond to today's message? To reaffirm our intention to show reverence for Christ by submitting to one another, by putting one another and preferring one another before ourselves. We come to this table as a body, as a community, as a diverse group of people united around only one thing, only one person, Jesus Christ. And so at this meal, we remember the one who loved us, the one who served us, and who calls us to follow his example in loving and serving one another. To make this more meaningful this morning, I thought we would try something a little different. I'm going to give you the chance to uh, submit to one another as an act of reverence for Christ by serving communion to one another. And let me explain the way we're going to do this. You'll come forward. We'll have this aisle be for moving backwards for traffic flow sake and this aisle being for coming forward. And when you come forward, the person in front of you after they have taken communion will turn towards you and they'll pick up the plate and they'll offer it to you. Um, our uh, industrious communion prayers this morning realized we didn't have any bread or matzah left, so they used saltine crackers. So I hope that's okay for everyone. I think it's okay with Jesus. All right, so they'll offer you the plate, and they may say something like the body of Christ or, or the bread of heaven. They may just smile. They may, if they know you well, they may want to pray a short prayer for you. Whatever they're comfortable with, they will do in offering you the bread. Then they'll point you toward the juice. We won't pick it up just to avoid accidents and to keep things simple. And again, they may just smile if that's what they're comfortable with. They may say the blood of Christ, the cup of your salvation. And you can take the cup then and, and just linger for as long as you want with the Lord. And then when you're done, you'll turn and you'll serve the person behind you. Um, I'll be available to help out to make sure everyone gets served and we remember what we're supposed to do. Okay, but we'll just take our time. It's, not be, it's a little different, but let's try not to be stressed about it. Let's just try to enjoy it and do it as an act of submitting to one another, of serving one another. Any questions? Does that make sense? So after you're served, you'll serve the person behind you in whatever way you're comfortable doing, first with the bread, then offering them the cup. Before we begin, though, let's take a minute to reflect and to make sure our heart is right. The Apostle Paul encourages us to examine ourselves before we take this meal. And what he has in mind in Corinthians where he says that is, above all, considering whether our relationships are right with the other people that we're taking communion with. And so I'm going to give you a moment now to be quiet and to examine yourselves. Then I'll pray, and then we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together. I don't know if we have it on the screen. If you don't know it, you can listen along. If you do know it, know it say with me as I close the prayer. Okay, but let's take a moment quietly first to examine ourselves.
God, thank you for this meal. Thank you that you have provided a way for us to be reconciled to you so that the shame and the guilt that we feel for our disobedience towards you, our lack of reverence toward you, can be atoned for and pushed aside and that you can welcome us with open arms. Thank you that in this meal you welcome us, you draw close to us, you feed us with spiritual food, you nourish us and strengthen us and embrace us tightly. Thank you that we get to do this together, even though we have trouble offering the same forgiveness and embrace to one another at times. I pray that you'd forgive us and that you would give us a new heart to be able to love one another better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And now the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we invite everyone who has a personal, trusting relationship with Jesus Christ as their Savior and King to participate in this meal. If you're not at that place in your spiritual journey, then we invite you to sit and just reflect for these these next few minutes. Okay. Come as you're ready. Welcome to Community Bible Church. I hope that you enjoyed the message, and we invite you to spend the next little while getting to know more of who we are as a church. Our church, of course, is called the Log Cabin Church, and it was originally out on the Taconic Parkway, uh, and it, it was uh, a combined restaurant uh, and a uh, uh, gasoline station, <laughs> and uh, when they decided to expand the Taconic, they were going to <coughs> they were going to tear it down. And and the uh, head engineer uh, there asked if he could take that. He would move it. He paid I think a dollar for the building. He had it moved uh, to where it is nowadays uh, on Shadid Road from the Taconic. <coughs> and uh, his idea was that he was going to uh, uh, finish it off, and he originally, he and his wife and family were from the Bronx, and they were going to move up here in the area, and so uh, he had it all refurbished and everything, his wife came, and she lived there for a short time, and finally she said, 
I can't live here, but it's too quiet. I've got to be with my family in the Bronx, so she moved. In the meantime, that was in the, the inception of, of uh, CBC, and uh, they were in various homes meeting, and uh, a couple of our, our main uh, men uh, were searching for a possible place to to uh, have our church, and he was driving past one day, and he saw this building, and he thought, oh, that might be a great place to have uh, a church and our meetings. Well, generally, the, the owner was not there, but he just happened to be there at the time, and he said, the Lord just said, stop. He walked in, he, he rang the doorbell, and he said to the man who answered, he said, you wouldn't be interested in selling this building by chance, would you? And he said, Yes, I would. And what what attracted you to, to CBC? Was there anything in particular or, or what? Um, there were a few things. I really liked the diversity of backgrounds and uh, ages and um, denominational backgrounds, too, to some extent. Um, I liked that the church placed a big emphasis on... Um, on everyone, every member of the congregation being involved in ministry, that it isn't just the pastor's job to do the ministry for the people or to the people, but that my job is to equip um, everyone to serve in, with whatever gifts and abilities God has given them. So I really liked that. Um, they were warm and welcoming and down to earth and yet um, thoughtful and and, um, and open too. That definitely not stuck in a rut or, or narrow, but there was a sense of that they, people were, were thinking. They were thoughtful and they were open. Um, and it just clicked. I don't know about you, but it was so bad at my house. Gina was gathering the cats two by two. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to me the philosophy and now, you know, what what a CBC is all about. And you've broken it down into three areas. Why don't you explain that? Well, our we have three purposes. The first one is to know God. The second one is to grow together. And the third one is to show Christ. Knowing God is about our upward relationship toward God. It's about our growth as, as people, a growth in our character, growth in our hearts, growth in our spirituality, that we're growing to become more like what God wants us to be. Uh, Genesis says that God made us in his own image. And um, unfortunately, we have become broken. That image has become broken. But Jesus came to show us more fully what it means to be fully human, someone who uh, is... is um, like God and, and in God's image and so God is encouraging us to become like Jesus and as we become like Jesus we become more like God's character as people who are made in his image so that's the first thing and, and, and along with that growth in who we are just um, a, a deeper relationship with God where we learn how much he loves us where we come to trust him more deeply which results in us having peace within ourselves um, in our relationships with other people and, and toward God. So knowing God is the, the first.
second thing is our inward relationship with one another where we're seeking to be a community of, um, of people. We're seeking to, to get to know one another. Um, life can be so busy and frenetic and stressful, and it seems that people today are more lonely than they ever have been before. They um, work a long day, often with the commute, and then they pull into their garages, and um, people are really isolated. So um, we're seeking to be a community where um, where we uh, where we're getting to know one another, where we can be. It's a safe and an honest enough place that we can share what we're really going through and what we're struggling with, as well as our joys and our victories along the way. Um, and a place where we can help one another grow spiritually, because you don't grow spiritually all by yourself. It's it's a it's a team sport. So we're, we're seeking to help one another to grow spiritually, and then to help one another do our third purpose, which is showing Christ, and that's our outward focus. Um, God has a big heart, a big enough heart to love us, and a big enough heart to love our neighbors and our family and the whole world, and we want to join Him in, uh, in that, that expression of His love through serving people, through helping people get to know God and, and grow in their own spiritual lives. Um, and get to know Jesus. So our outward focus is finding ways um, to be to be reaching. What makes CBC to you a unique and a different church? I think it's several things. It's a church that uh, is foundational on the Word of God. Uh, so there's a uh, you know, good teaching and, and good preaching that's on the Word of God. Uh, it's made up of a diverse group of individuals, young and old. Uh, it's a church where people uh, uh, reach out and interact with each other. They care for people. Uh, it's, I think, going through a uh, transition stage in a sense that uh, at one time it was much larger. It's, uh, it's gotten smaller, but now it's starting to grow again a bit. So I think it's a great place for uh, families to come and to grow together. So true. Well, you know, it's refreshing. CBC seems like a place where other churches or other people that I've not recognized from CBC come and, and take part in this woman's Bible study. So um, could you, you know, talk a little bit about yeah. that? Um, there are many churches who don't have a women's Bible study. So um, this is open to any woman from any church background, um, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, Catholic women, a Baptist, you name it, they, um, they come because they don't have anything in their church. So uh, 
over the years we have many, many uh, women who have gone through woman to woman. Rudy, I noticed that you, uh, you're not a regular over at CBC, so you just come here for the women's Bible studies? Yes, I just come here to fellowship with the women during the day. I regularly attend uh, a Bible study church down in Irvington, but i uh, chosen to come here. Okay, and how long have you been coming down here for? Last three years. Wow, it's yeah. been a long time, and you've, gr- and you've grown a lot. You like the format of the, uh, of the Bible study over here? I do. We have, we have a chance to, to meet in a large group where we can benefit from different teachers and the different styles that they have, but then we also get the blessing of being in a small group where you can have that more one-on-one time to question and talk about you know different things that may be on your mind or that you're not clear about. The battle for me was identity, giving up that identity I had forged. And when you're 16, you cling closely to that identity and peer group. Um, so that was the context I looked at this in. It's like, I, I couldn't tell you. I don't know enough about any of these guys to tell you which camp I fall in. For me, it was more of that uh, my, one of my favorite scriptures is Galatians 2.21, and do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Um, I grew up in a very works-oriented, mm-hmm. not faith, but you were praised for what you did, not for who you were. Um, what parts of CBC are you actively involved in? I know I, I see you you're all over the place. You, you're very involved as a pastor in the church. I see you with the men's group. I saw you at Scattered Church last night. You take part in the events that we have here. You play guitar, which was you know a lot of fun. You know on on Saturday night. I mean, how how active are you in in, in the different parts of, of of the church and what? kind of, of uh, knowing you have a whole body, how active are you involved in putting all of those together? Mm, well, um, CBC's philosophy, which is a philosophy that I appreciate and embrace, is that everyone is a minister, a part of the ministry. Um, that God has given everyone gifts to, to serve and to um, minister and to reach out and to encourage one another. My job is to equip people to do that more effectively, to figure out what God has gifted them to be good at, to help them to grow in those abilities. Um, And um, so there are certain things where I take uh, initiative and leadership, but there's lots of other things where I just try to spur on other people and encourage one another, other people, and, and come alongside them. Um, so, um, one of the exciting groups that that we have been in the process of, of getting going this past year, uh, me along with a couple other um, young families, um, and my wife is involved as well, is a group called Family Connection. Um, and the goal of Family Connection is to live out our churches mission of knowing God, growing together, and um, showing Christ. And so we're trying to connect families with God, we're trying to connect families with one another, and we're trying to connect families with our community so that they're reaching out um, to show Christ in the community. And um, that is is a fellowship group. We meet in homes, we have a lot of fun, we include the kids, we um, eat together, and while we do some Bible study and, and prayer that's structured, we have a lot of unstructured time to to catch up with one another's lives, 
to um, talk about what's going on in our lives spiritually and personally, and then also to um, have activities that we can invite friends along to, to be a part of. So that's one of the things I've been quite involved in. Another is the men's Bible study. I've had the privilege of getting together with a group of guys on Thursday nights um, to have fun together, to eat pizza, to um, to dig into God's Word. And, and again, I don't um, I don't lead it every week. We uh, I lead it sometimes, but other guys take turns leading it too. Some of them have been leading Bible studies for years, and others are brand new and they're just trying their wings. Um, so that's another thing I'm involved in. I try to know people and I try to be a presence um, so I'm not involved at everything but I try to be around from time to time and to um, to be aware of, of what's going on Community Bible Church is a warm, it's creative, and it's fun. Can you say that we're, you, you classify CBC as a traditional church or an unconventional church? Hmm. Well, every church, just like every family, has its traditions. You know, just wait till Christmas or, or Thanksgiving. Um, I would say in, you know, we're, we're kind of a strange blend of both. We are unconventional in some ways. I mean, we have this wonderful lounge, which um, has a fireplace and a stuffed elk hanging over it. We used to be a, um, a tavern at one time up on the Takana Parkway, um, and it's been uh, converted into our meeting and our, our worship space. Um, so in some ways, we're unconventional. Um, but CBC, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year, and, and we, we have our traditions, which are meaningful to us. Um, so we've seen things about being a pastor is I have the privilege of serving and ministering to and trying to love 
over a hundred different people. But I think what I like most is I've got a hundred people loving me and encouraging me and supporting me, and I can't possibly give as much to them as they can give to me. Um, and CBC has been a warm um, and encouraging uh, place, and I'm really privileged to be here. While it's fun for everyone to come here to this beautiful spot in the woods um, off the Taconic Parkway near I the IBM Research Center, um, they spend most of their time living their Christian life in Peekskill or in Austin or, or in Croton, um, as well as wherever they work during the day. And so one of the things we're, we're seeking to do is, is not only encouraging people to come to church, but encouraging people to be the church and take the church to where they are. So I would like to see um, small groups um, and outreach-oriented, mission-oriented groups starting up in each of these towns over the years and, and reaching out to people who, for whatever reason, may not find their ways to, to our log, find their way to our log cabin in the woods. Well, we hope that you enjoyed the program, and we'd love to have you come and visit us at 9.30 on Sunday mornings. If you'd like to find out more information about our church, you could also visit us on the web at www.communitybiblechurch.org or you could call our church office if you have any questions or would like more information at 914-762-1632. If you appreciate these messages, we would love to know about it. We'd love to have you send us an email at info at communitybiblechurch.org and just let us know that you appreciate having these messages on TV. Thank you, God bless you, and have a great day.